You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Merciful God, as we uh, look at your word this day, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your instruction through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now look, I get it. Not everyone in our lives is super ambitious. Not everyone wants to have the really high-flying career. For some of us, the ambition in life is to find a nine-to-five job, probably in the public service, get paid a lot, for not much work. I mean, it's a great life, isn't it? But I suspect even for the most unambitious person, all of us, at least in some area of life, we grasp for greatness. It might not be the great career, but it might be the great marriage, the great body, the great social life. Even the most unambitious person desires greatness with something. I suspect many of us pick that up from a young age from our parents. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, one of my friends uh, said to her parents, uh, when I grow up, I want to be a primary school teacher. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know what her parents said? What about a primary school principal? You see, if you're a parent, our children, they can do whatever they want in life as long as they're happy. No, wrong, as long as they're successful, as long as they're great. You see, our culture isn't the first or the only to be obsessed with greatness. In first century Judaism, everyone was preoccupied with status and success. That culture, it was so fixated on on where they sat in the social pecking order that some rabbinic writings even specified the seating order in heaven. So, when we're all in heaven, I'll get the VIP box seat closest to God, and I'm sorry, you guys, uh, or you guys, or you guys, you're going to get uh, the cheap seats with the plebs. That, that was the world into which Mark is writing, a world obsessed with greatness and success. And it's a culture not unlike our own. So, if you want to have a great career, if you want to have a great marriage, if you want to have a great body, if you want to have a great social life, guess what? You're in luck. Because today, Mark is going to show you how to be truly great. In two sections, he's going to show us who is truly great and how to be truly great. Well, who is truly great? I know that many of you guys know this. If you want to be truly great, truly successful at something, well, you start by finding someone who has arrived, don't you? You start by finding someone else who is successful and where you want to be, and then you follow them. So, if you want to have a great body, find a gym junkie and train with them. If you want to have a great career, find a mentor and work for them. After all, that's what corporate networking is, isn't it? I mean, finding that great investor, that great entrepreneur, and then building a relationship with them. And if we're honest, it's all about gaining their loyalty so that through our connection, eventually we can benefit from their success. Uh, Many years ago, I was an annoying law student. The annoying part might still be there. Uh, But that's exactly what I would do. I would scour the Finn Review to find the best lawyers in the field. And once I found them, I would follow them. Not, Not stalk them, just follow them, follow their careers, get to know them, meet them, all because I wanted to benefit from their greatness. 
Well, throughout his gospel, Mark has been showing us that Jesus is not just a great leader or a successful teacher. No, he is the Messiah. He is God's saviour king. In chapters 1 to 8, he painted a portrait of greatness. Jesus heals the sick, casts out demons, performs miracles, and he even visibly transfigures into the glory of God. Can I tell you, Jesus, he's the king you want to follow. It's why the crowds get so excited about him, right? They think that Jesus has come in greatness and glory to smash the Roman Empire, to establish his political kingdom. To adapt the words of one political leader, they expect that Jesus has come to make Israel great again. But in Mark 9 to 11, we see another portrait of Jesus emerge. You see, not only is Jesus God's saviour king, he is God's suffering king. So, if you want to understand how Mark 9 to 11 fits together, this is how you do it, right? These chapters are structured around three core passages, all of which reveal what kind of king Jesus is. There are three core passages, three predictions of Jesus' passion. And when I say passion, I don't mean like his energy or passionate nature, I mean his suffering. So the first is back in chapter 8, verse 31. Notice, it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. Second prediction, right here, chapter 9, verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. And the third is forthcoming in chapter 10, verse 33. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. These three passages, they give us the superstructure to Mark 9 to 11. And so can you see the thrice-repeated message of Mark 9 to 11? Three passion predictions, all revealing what kind of king this is. What kind of king is Jesus? Three predictions tell us this message, God's saviour king is God's suffering king. God's saviour king is God's suffering king. And if you didn't get it the first time, he tells you three times over. And in this second prediction, we see Jesus' greatness through Jesus' suffering. Just, Just have a look at the detail with me. Notice the irony of verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. So just think about this, right? The Son of Man, that the prophesied Saviour of the world, will be betrayed by the very world he's come to save. He will die in the place of those who will kill him. So often we think about the gospel as Jesus taking a bullet for us, right? But Jesus doesn't just take a bullet for an innocent person. No, he takes a bullet for the person firing the gun. If someone takes a bullet for an innocent guy, we all look at him and call him a great man. But but if someone takes a bullet for the person firing the gun straight at him, no, we call him a fool. The person firing the gun, he doesn't deserve to be saved. He deserves to be judged, to be punished, to be incarcerated. Well, why in the world would you take a bullet for the very criminal who's out to kill you? No, that ain't great. That's foolish. 
It just doesn't make sense. And that's why you'll see in all three of those passion predictions, the disciples simply don't get it. Uh, Chapter 8, first prediction, Peter rebukes Jesus, always a bad idea. Second prediction, chapter 9, here we are, the disciples are ignorant, literally agnostic and afraid. And chapter 10, which we'll see in a few weeks, James and John, man, can I tell you, they really don't get it. Because if it's greatness through suffering, they're like, Jesus, give us positions of power in your kingdom. And he says, you don't know what you're asking for. No, we are so much like the disciples, aren't we? We just don't get it. We don't value greatness through suffering. No, we value greatness through strength. Can you guess what the worst criticism a leader can cop might be? If you're a leader, what's the worst thing that someone can say about your leadership? Let me tell you, it's this. You're weak. You're a weak leader. And that's just like a knife to the heart of any leader. Because what we want is what political theorists call the strongman leader. The leader who is steady. Who is, who is strong, who is stable, the leader who won't be pushed around, the leader who stands up for himself. We don't want a weak leader. We don't want a passive leader. We want a strong leader. The problem, of course, with a strong man leader is this. There's no room for mercy. There's no space for compassion. There's no place for love. You see, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, Jesus, he is by far the most compelling person you will ever meet. Because Jesus uses his great power at his own expense and for the good of us who simply don't deserve it. He is a king who is strong and yet loving, powerful and yet compassionate, almighty and yet all-loving. Jesus has a tender strength and a gentle power. And out of his infinite love, he uses that infinite power for the infinite good of the infinitely undeserving. Oh, we all look for the great man, the great woman, the great person who we might follow. Can I tell you, if you want to be great, start by finding the one person who is truly great and follow him. Start by following Jesus. Well, how then do we be truly great? What's the secret of true greatness? It is one of the most common questions that we ask people we admire, isn't it? Jeremy, how can I be truly great? How can I build a great body? That's actually written here, not Jeremy. But how can I build a great body? How can I grow the great career? I remember the advice that one lawyer gave me all those years ago, and this is what he said. Two pieces of advice, Adam. Number one, know the right people. Number two, put your own interests first. Know the right people and put your own interests first. Well, in verses 33 to 34, we find the disciples, what are they doing? They're arguing over who is the greatest. And that whole scene, it just drips with irony, doesn't it? Because the disciples, they're bickering over which one of them is the greatest, but they can't even see that the greatest one of all is standing right in front of them, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They are so blinded by their own ambition for greatness that they can't even see greatness personified. And so, what does Jesus do? He doesn't tell them off. No, he's kind, he's gracious. He, he sits down to teach them what it means to be truly great. Verse 25, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Notice, Jesus, he's not just redefining greatness, no, he's turning it upside down, he's inverting greatness. If you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be the king, you must be a servant. If you want to be great like me, you must suffer like me. Jesus isn't just teaching his disciples, no, this is what true greatness looks like. No, he's showing them, I am what true greatness looks like. I am the first because I will become last. I will become the servant of all humanity. I am the son of man because I will die for men. I am the saviour of the world because I will die for the world. I am God's saviour king because I am his suffering king. Who is truly great? Jesus in his suffering. How can I be truly great? Follow Jesus in his suffering. Let me take you back to that big three-part structure of these chapters. We see this pattern of Jesus' suffering and our suffering in each one of these passion predictions. You'll see it on the screen. After the first prediction, 8.34, what does Jesus say? If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. After the second prediction, 9.35, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And after the third prediction, in 10.43, Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. If you want the spark notes to Mark 9 to 11, here's the one-line summary. Follow in the footsteps of your suffering king. Follow in the footsteps of your suffering king. And I love what Jesus does here, right? Because he teaches the truth and he knows his disciples and we, we're slow to get things. So often we need visual representations, which I don't have on me today, but Jesus does. To illustrate the message of verse 25, what does he do? He picks out a child from the crowd. He takes him in his arms and he shows us two ways to be truly great. Through this child, he shows us two ways to be truly great. Number one, welcome everyone. Welcome everyone. Now, if you think about it, that, those two words, welcome everyone, nothing could be more opposite to the advice that the lawyer gave me all those years ago. He didn't say, welcome everyone. He said, no, 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 you pick. You be strategic. You be smart. Know the right people. Connect with the movers and shakers. Network with the people of power and influence. Adam, you need to be selective in building your corporate network. Don't waste time on people who can't help you. Don't waste time on the support staff. Don't waste time on HR. I'm sorry if you work in HR. And that's exactly why Jesus takes a child into his arms. Because in that culture, children, people didn't look at children and go, oh my gosh, how cute, look at how cute they are. No, no, in that culture, children were useless. They have no connections, no power, no influence. Children are the antithesis of everything that is great. 
Children are nothing more than economic deadweight. Don't take that out of context. They are the least. So don't waste your time on them. They can't help you. And yet here is the king who takes a child into his arms. It's quite poignant, isn't it, actually? In verse 37, he says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. You see, if you want to be truly great, welcome the least. Embrace the overlooked. Accept the rejected. Take in the outcast. Serve those people who cannot serve you back. Give to those people who cannot give back to you. Welcome everyone in my name, that is, in my kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God, it's a beautiful place. It's a place of true greatness where where God welcomes not just the strong and the powerful and the popular and the successful. No, it's the place where God welcomes the rejected and the forgotten of our world. If you want to know why Jesus is so great, it's because he welcomes the least. And, And when we, as his disciples, reflect that greatness... When we welcome the least, verse 37 says, we are welcoming God himself. Just pause for a moment. Think now. Think now about the Christians you know who might be socially at the margins. Christians who might not have much to contribute to church life. Brothers and sisters who might be easily forgotten or rejected by everyone else. The ones on Sunday, let's face it, who you'd much rather not talk to. Brothers and sisters, if that person bears the name of Jesus, they are precisely the person whom God calls us to welcome. They are the one whom Jesus embraces in his arms, and so must we. He calls us to welcome the least. And now he calls us to welcome the lowly. In verses 38 to 41, these verses, I don't know if in your BLTs when you're going through these passages, you think, this part just seems totally unrelated, I have no idea what's going on. But these verses are tied together by that one phrase, there you see it again, in my name. You see, that the powerless child of verse 37, he is welcomed in my name. And the nameless disciple of verse 38 is driving out demons in your name. You see, the powerless child and the nameless disciple are visible signs that true greatness is shown by who we welcome in Jesus' name. Who do we welcome? Who do we embrace? Who do we count as one of our own? I can tell you in verse 38, the disciples, they are not welcoming this nameless man. In fact, they're rejecting him. Why? Not because he wasn't following Jesus. I love this. Notice what they say. Because he wasn't following us. Us. The the disciples, they're making it all about their name instead of Jesus' name. Their greatness instead of Jesus' greatness. This is what they're thinking, right? Look, boys, because they were all boys, we're close to Jesus. We're at the center of greatness, but not that nameless random. Who does he think he is? We're up here, he's down there. My favorite part about this is like, 
This nameless disciple, he can cast out demons, but actually that's the very thing that these disciples failed to do just a few verses earlier. Can you imagine how galling it must be? We're the true disciples. Who's this nobody? He's not one of us. But Jesus says, he's one of mine. He's one of mine. If someone bears my name, they might not belong to you, but who cares about you? They belong to me. They belong to Christ. That's the one true identity that matters. They might not be great in the eyes of this world. They might not be great even in your eyes. They can be this powerless child, this nameless disciple, but if they bear my name, I will welcome them. I will embrace them. I will love them. And so must you. This man, he might be outside your tribe, but he is within my people. And then Jesus does something really subtle and tricky in verse 41. He flips the table on his disciples. Whoever gives notice, he doesn't say whoever gives that man, he doesn't say whoever gives that child, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you he will never lose his reward. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? In verse 37, he urged his disciples, welcome the child. Now in verse 41, is speaking of other people welcoming them. It's not just about the child. It's not about the nameless disciple. No, you are the little child. You are the nameless man. All of you bear my name. So welcome the least and embrace the lowly. You know, years ago, I led a youth group at another church, and I know some of you were part of that church. It was a good 15 years ago. And there was one year, it was December, I distinctly remember it, and one one of the year 12 boys just, he dropped off the map. We just couldn't find him. He went dark. It was around the time that uh, they were releasing your uh, then what we called enter scores, now they're ATARs, or your high school graduation mark. And we couldn't find him. Turns out he fled the country. He was in Malaysia, not because he was on a family trip, but because he didn't want to be around church when he got his score. I asked him, I said, brother, what, 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 where have you been? And he said, Adam, everyone at church is just so intelligent, so successful. I'm just not smart enough. Oh, my heart broke. How tragic is that? I mean, churches, all churches, our church, can so easily be defined by anything other than Jesus. And within the church, the truth is, we can welcome each other, we can relate to one another, we can embrace one another based on anything other than Jesus. The tragedy is, we look at the church through worldly eyes. We define greatness within the kingdom by the standards of the world outside of the kingdom. We evaluate our brothers and sisters based on our career success, our home ownership, our cultural background, our physical appearance, or even our social ability. And we may not intend it, but we end up applying two levels of welcome. A better welcome, a warmer welcome, a warm embrace for the successful, good-looking person, the sociable person who's great in conversation, who everyone loves to be around and a lower 
level of a welcome. Let's face it, it's not an embrace. We're not opening our arms. We're actually putting out our arms to keep them at arm's length, aren't we? For the ordinary, average-looking, socially awkward person, the person who is hard to have a conversation with, the person who you try and speak to but they just don't give you much in return. Let me ask, who do you welcome within the kingdom of God? Who do you most naturally embrace within the church? Jesus calls us to welcome the least, to embrace the lowly, people at the margins who just can't give us anything in return, people who might be hard to talk to and even difficult to love. Because the truth is, the Lord Jesus Christ died for them. And when we embrace them, we welcome God himself. You see, just like the disciples, we are the little child, we are the nameless disciple. How can I be truly great? Number one, welcome everyone. Welcome everyone. Number two, sacrifice everything. Sacrifice everything. Remember the second piece of advice that that lawyer gave me, right? Put your own interests first. When you make a decision about your career... Don't worry about your company. Don't worry about your firm. This is what he said to me. Loyalty is dead. They don't care about you. Why should you care about them? Why would you sacrifice your own career progress for the good of someone else who wouldn't give you anything in return? It's that ironclad principle of self-interest in economics, isn't it, Yuli? Jesus, though, isn't an economic rationalist, at least not when it comes to our spiritual lives. Because true greatness is to welcome everyone and to sacrifice everything. That just doesn't make sense. You see, I want you to picture it. Jesus is holding that little child. He's just called his disciples to welcome the least and lowly, people just like this neglected child. And now in verse 24, he gives them a warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And you hear what he's saying? If you welcome the least and lowly, you welcome me. If you reject the least and lowly, you reject me. If you literally, what the the word is, scandalize them, if you make them fall away, if you lead them away from Christ by your life, by your words, by your conduct, if you scandalize the least and lowly, if you bring them under judgment, you are actually scandalizing yourself. You're bringing yourself under judgment. If you bring them under condemnation, you bring yourself under condemnation. So whatever you do, do not hinder the faith of the least and lowly. In fact, do whatever it takes sacrifice everything to protect and safeguard their faith. Now look carefully with me, right? I suspect that's what's happening in verses 42 to 43. I don't think Jesus is just warning us against the dangers of sin for our own sake, though he is doing that. No, he's warning against the dangers of sin for the sake of others, for the sake of the least and lowly. So trace the logic with me, right? Verse 42, if you cause the least and lowly to fall away, what are you doing? you yourself will fall away. We see that same word in verse 43. If your hand causes you to fall away, presumably because it caused them to fall away, then cut it off. 
It's not just about you here, it's about them. Don't just sacrifice everything for your own sake. No, sacrifice everything for the sake of the least and lowly. Don't just welcome them like Jesus. No, sacrifice for them like Jesus. Don't just put your own interests first, like that lawyer told me. No, put the interests of others first, just like Jesus. Sacrifice everything for their good. And when you do, you will save yourself as well. I want you to notice three parts to Jesus' warning, three parts to Jesus' warning. Firstly, Jesus calls us to sacrifice what is good. God created our hands, our feet, and our eyes. They are good things. But he does call us to sacrifice what is good for the sake of what is best. Secondly, Jesus calls for extreme action. Obviously, he isn't telling us to literally dismember ourselves. But don't downplay the extremity of what Jesus calls for. Thirdly, Jesus says eternity is at stake. The cost of sin is the fires of hell. And that means the benefit of sacrifice is the glories of heaven. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, we will never regret our greatest sacrifice for Jesus' sake. We will never regret our greatest sacrifice for Jesus' sake. Notice Jesus is saying, sacrifice what is good for the sake of what is best. Sacrifice what is temporal for the sake of what is eternal. If you get career advice these days, most people will try and tell you, you know what? You can have it all. You can have it all. You don't have to choose in life. You can have the career. You can have the family. You can have the wealth. You can have the multiple houses. But Jesus warns us, sure, you can have it all today, but you may just lose it all in eternity. You can gain the whole world, but lose your very soul. No, friends, true greatness means losing the world to save your soul. It means sacrificing everything, not just for our own sakes here, right? It means sacrificing everything for the sake of the least and lowly. This passage is an uncomfortable one, but in many ways it's a great one because it's remarkably hard to explain away, isn't it? You can't really hide from this passage, can you? Let me summarize it for you. If you want to be truly great, if you want to have the great career, the great marriage, the great body, the great social life, well, here's what you do. Search your heart. Find those things which lead you to sin and cut it off. Cut it off. Sacrifice it for the sake of your soul. Let's get, let's get uncomfortably specific. Does social media lead you to envy and despair? Delete your account. Does your smartphone lead you into pornography or other addiction? Get a brick phone. Do your friends lead you into greed, materialism, drunkenness, and gossip? Get new friends. Does your relationship lead you into sexual sin? Stop now or break up. But, 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 but no, 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 Adam, it's, it's just not that simple. Well, actually, it is. 
it, it is that simple. It's just not easy. See, following Jesus, it's not complicated. It's just hard. But true greatness recognizes the impact of our sin, not just on ourselves, but on others. Do you notice that with all of those sins, with all of those transgressions, we're not the only victim there. It affects other people. Too many young Christians lose their faith each and every week because they see other believers indulge in the very sins that end up taking them out. They see Christians hit the clubs, marry unbelievers, idolize careers. And you know what? It justifies their sin and takes them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a warning for all of us who aren't the young Christian. Because it says how we live doesn't just impact our eternity, it impacts theirs as well. Jesus is warning us, if you're clubbing, you're marrying, you're working, takes out a young believer, I will take you out. That's on us. So stop. Sacrifice everything, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the least and lowly. To adapt to John Owen... Be killing sin, or sin will be killing us all. Welcome everyone, sacrifice everything. Do you notice how in both these cases it's all about the other person? Because that's exactly what Jesus does. He, he welcomes the least and lowly, and he sacrifices not his hand, not his feet, not his eyes. He gives his whole life to save the undeserving. He sacrifices everything. He models true greatness. He is the first because he became the last and the servant of all. He welcomed all by sacrificing all. Jesus doesn't just redefine greatness, no, he personifies it. And he calls us to follow in the footsteps of our suffering king. To live out a greatness that is so distinct from this world. That's pretty much what he's saying in that final metaphor, assault and fire. I know you've all been waiting for this. Let me step you through it. Verse 50 shows us that salt is the good flavor, good flavor, distinct from our world. What is that distinctness? Well, we've been seeing it this entire passage. It's that otherworldly greatness through suffering. That's what the salt is. Verse 49 confirms that greatness is shown through the fires of suffering as we become the last and servant to all. Does that make sense? We are great through suffering, so that makes sense that there's fire, fires of suffering as we become the last and servant of all, as we take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow Jesus. And that salt, that, that distinct greatness through suffering, that other person-centeredness, that willingness to welcome others and sacrifice for all, that should be among us as the people of God. We shouldn't be like the disciples who are bickering, jogging and competing for greatness and power. No, we should be truly at peace. There you have it in verse 50, at peace with one another by welcoming the least, by sacrificing for the lowly. In the world, if you're going to be salty, that means one thing. In the Scriptures, to be salty is a great thing. Sacrificially welcome one another just as Jesus sacrificed himself to welcome us. So many of us have great ambitions for ourselves, don't we? 
In your career, you're looking for what's coming next. In your marriage, you might be looking towards children. There's a whole range of things that we aim for greatness, to be married, fit, successful, and wealthy. But Jesus wants to give us, in one sense, greater ambitions, not for ourselves, but for his kingdom, to strive for true greatness, not individually, but as the people of God. So let me ask this question. What would it look like for our church to be truly great? What would it look like for Cross and Crown to be a salty church? That's right, you've heard it here. We want to be a salty church. Well, let me give you a picture of what that church might be. And I hope that you might share this ambition. I don't have this ambition because I get paid to do it, right? I, I, get, I have this ambition because I belong to this family. And I hope that as a church, we might share these ambitions for our family. What would it look like for us to be a salty church? We would be a church that welcomes the disabled, the unemployed, the poor, the awkward, and the needy in Jesus' name. We would be a church that values biblical expository preaching, robust reformed theology, a deep evangelical piety, but welcomes the simplest of believers who bears the name of Jesus. And we would be a church that is willing to sacrifice everything so that we might welcome everyone, so that Cross and Crown might be a place where the least and lowly are welcomed home. That's what true mission is. It's not just about going out. It's about making sure that the people of God, that the church of God is a church with arms wide open to all whom the Lord Jesus Christ would call home. Will you join me in being that church? Will you join me in following the footsteps of our great and suffering King? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for this great reminder of what true greatness looks like. Give us deeper, higher, greater, wider ambitions for who we might be, not individually, but who we might be as your people. May we be people, God, who would welcome all whom you would welcome, who would sacrifice just as the Lord Jesus sacrificed, who might follow in the footsteps of our great and mighty King. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.